Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's time. Time for stimulating talk. Time for thought-provoking conversation. Time for the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. Turn on your brain and get the real scoop on today's topics and events. Here is Lisa Wexler. And here we are. We're one talk over the line. The line beginning, of course, right now around 10 o'clock. If you've been waiting for this moment to be able to buy your pot recreationally, at some point we'll figure out a common word for pot, weed, marijuana, whatever it is you call it. I'm just going to call it pot because that's the word that I grew up using. And if that marks me of a certain generation, so be it. In any event, Connecticut and its infinite wisdom has decided that Uh, we're going to be able to buy pot if we're over the age of 21. And I'd like to know how you feel about that. 203-333-9422. On our show today, Jesse Green, the extraordinarily extraordinarily influential theater critic of the New York Times, will be joining us at 1030. We'll switch the conversation around and talk about a preview of what's coming on the theater, what's on now, and how in general Broadway is doing. But at 11.15 this morning, we'll come back to a conversation with former Weston student, now a college kid, Jordan Davidson, who has his own cautionary tale about his addiction to marijuana, 203-333-9422. But here we are today, and today is the first day that Connecticut is officially allowing people to buy pot because they feel like it, because they want to. In the meantime, Justin Elliker, the mayor of New Haven, had a press conference And he and his health advisors were begging people to, uh, health director Maritza Bond, urging customers to mind what she calls the three L's, to lock it, to store cannabis products at home out of reach of minors, to label it, to ensure that someone doesn't ingest products by accident and then, quote, freak out or, quote, get sick. Well, we know that that's happened. We know that kids uh, in middle schools and high schools have gotten hold, sometimes on a school bus, of gummy bears and other kinds of candy-like looking, seductively packaged pot, and then they've gotten pretty sick from it, and limit it, avoiding overconsumption of risks since it can take up to an hour or two for ingested cannabis to take full effect. So what do you think about all of this? I know this day has been coming for a pretty long time. Police Chief Carl Jacobson of New Haven saying four extra cops will be on duty today to expect increased vehicular traffic as we have, I think we have nine available recreational dispensaries and many, many more thousands of applicants who cannot wait to be able to smell, to to be able to sell pot, believing that there is this extraordinary pent-up demand for marijuana. 
in Connecticut, and they just all cannot wait to make money from it. So, you know, um, I was walking in New York City over the weekend, and I felt like I was in a Cheech and Chong movie. And I never even watched those Cheech and Chong movies, but I know exactly what they were about. They were about a haze of marijuana, a haze of pot and weed. And I resented it terribly. And I resent it terribly when I walk on a city street in anywhere, New York, Connecticut now, and the pervasive smell of marijuana is something that hits me with the same kind of hitting me that I grew up smelling tobacco uh, whenever I would go into a room. Because when I was a kid, smoking was everywhere, and you smelled tobacco all the time. And it was uncomfortable and coffee and sometimes made my eyes tears and I had to get out of the way. And we created this massive public campaign to say, you know what? The smoker can smoke, but the smoker doesn't have a right to have the effects of his smoke affect me. And so this conversation about secondhand smoke came into our vocabulary. And all of a sudden, Mayor Mike Bloomberg was one of the first people who said in New York City, many people then copied his approach, no smoking in public places. Forget it. I don't want to smell your tobacco. You want to smell your tobacco? You get to do it in your own house, in your own private space. But I don't, I have a right as a human being to not have to be exposed to it. I don't like it. It sticks to my clothes and I don't want it. Why are we making an exception for pot? What's going on here? Why are we making an exception for pot? Why do I have to be smelling, inhaling something that is not only uncomfortable for me, but it's a psychoactive substance? Why do I have to smell like skunk all the time? Why do I have to feel like when I get out of the car, it's sticking to my clothes too? What's that about? Haven't we even learned that basic bit of consideration for other people? But no, I'm telling you, you walk the streets of New York, you feel like you're in a Cheech and Chong movie, and I'm not kidding. And it isn't fun. And it doesn't feel particularly fair. So 203-333-9422, do you want to talk about how you feel about the legalization of recreational pot here in Connecticut today. Are you going to be lining up to go? We, I've, I've seen other websites of other radio stations basically advertising for people and saying, here, you can go here, you can go there. Let's celebrate. It's 420 day. Congrats to everybody. This is a long time coming. At the very same time, we have 44,000 convictions. That's astonishing in a state of only 3 million people. 44,000 convictions that are expected to be overturned pronto because these were convictions for the sale, distribution, whatever, of pot. And they were a long time ago, or they weren't. But in any event, our state has decided that these convictions don't deserve to stay, given that we are now legalizing the substance for which these people went to jail. And because the conviction itself has hampered these individuals' ability to re-enter the working world, re-enter the world of being able to rent an apartment, get a credit card, and get a job. So we are deciding as a society to forgive those transgressions, which were, after all, illegal when they were done, because in the big picture of life, we don't want people to be saddled with this for the rest of their life. That's 44,000 convictions that are expected to be overturned on this alone. Let's go to Bill from Fairfield, 203-333-9422. Good morning, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. I think you're getting it a little off with the second the secondhand smoke thing. I think they banned that because secondhand smoke from cigarettes will kill you. Carcinogens, I think that was it, the push But the that. exposure but I, I, is not going to kill you if you go into an occasional restaurant. The exposure no. is not going to kill you if you're in a lobby. No, no, no. It was about the fact that they just wanted to eradicate the cigarettes from public spaces, Bill. They just wanted to make sure. And, they, and one of the reasons was, was secondhand fun. smoke, you know? So what, what would kill you is if you had a smoker in your household and you constantly had to be inhaling their smoke. It wasn't from a 10-minute yeah. occasional, you know, whatever. It was, it was a public health. It was a public health message. We don't like tobacco. We don't want people to, right? I'm just saying that to me, it was a public health statement and we haven't made. I think you should check that a little bit. But I think also that alcohol will kill you. Alcohol will disrupt your family. For sure. For sure. Um, All of those things, the cancer involved from alcohol's uh, consumption and the consumption of tobacco will kill you. 
Uh, alcohol will make you drive a car full of your friends into a tree. Yeah. Um, and I don't think any of that is prevalent in the field of marijuana. Really? Why and do you so say I that? Think because I've lost over a dozen friends from alcohol and opiates. Uh-huh. And I've never lost and I don't I I, I think there's studies that uh, marijuana doesn't cause cancer. I don't think I've never seen a study that not. marijuana doesn't cause cancer. In fact, the studies well, I've it depends. Hold on, Bill. Bill. Bill, yeah. listen to me. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. It depends how you use marijuana. Yeah. If you use marijuana by smoking it, the smoking of marijuana can be just as deadly in terms of your lungs as smoking cigarettes. The substance of cannabis true. doesn't cause cancer per se. It depends well, upon the way you ingest it. It yeah. absolutely is I, true. I'll I look it up. I think you should get a, a doctor on board. To, uh, to I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to. I think it's a little skewed. I, I don't think the statistics will tell you that um, marijuana has caused, you know, alcohol, the same things that alcohol creates. I'm not comparing it to alcohol. Let me explain what the NIH says. The NIH says marijuana smoke contains carcinogenic combustion products, including 50% more benzoprene and 75% more benzocrethacine. And more phenols, vinyl chlorides, nitrosamines, reactive oxygen species than cigarette smoke. Because of how it is typically smoked, deeper inhale held for longer. Marijuana smoking leads to four times the deposition of tar compared to cigarette smoking. However, while a a few small uncontrolled studies have suggested that heavy regular marijuana smoking could increase risk for respiratory cancers... Well-designed population studies have failed to find an increased risk of lung cancer associated with marijuana use. So one of the things that they're saying is they're concerned about smoking marijuana, and they still need to do some studies on it, but that's very different than, let's say, taking a gummy of marijuana. However, however, Bill, since you're calling about Mm -hmm. this, and this is on the NIH website, The Food and Drug Administration has alerted the public to hundreds of reports of serious lung illnesses associating with vaping marijuana. So again, it depends how you're it depends how you're getting the marijuana in your system in terms of your lungs. That's basically what they're saying. Yeah. Agreed. My thing is the the death rate from alcohol compared to marijuana is staggering, I think. And just from experience, all my friends uh, and people I've known that have died from opiates and alcohol, and even my parents' um, generation, when I look back, she, my parents had four friends that died from alcoholism, ruptured mm-hmm. um, it, uh, arteries in their stomachs, ulcers, yeah. Yeah. and that was truly alcohol-related. And that was four people in my parents' close circle. Yeah. Um, so I think the comparison, I'm just thinking the death rate, and that's the tragic part of all this stuff. Um uh, the comparison, alcohol is far more deadly, I think, than marijuana. I think the the, the medical uh, aspect of marijuana has come a long way. The yeah. glaucoma and psych. Yeah, and no, listen, you may be right about that, that, for sure. For sure. Marijuana has, marijuana has therapeutic positive uses that I don't think alcohol has. I mean, except for like rubbing alcohol on your skin, but not ingesting it, for sure. For sure. But, you know, the real question is, because we are now in an age where everybody can use it and will use it, we really won't know until 20 years from now, looking back on our public health impact of having recreational use of marijuana. We're not going to know because up till now it's been illegal and therefore there haven't been proper studies of it. Well, that's kind of true. Can you verify the fact that Marijuana was rated the same as heroin on the scale of, of illicit it was. drugs. Yes, it was. It was, it was, it was a level one that? narcotic. Level one narcotic, and therefore, because of it, um, the, it, it, basically, all the biotech companies were essentially prohibited from studying it in the proper way. Interesting, because they've both been around. Alcohol's been around a long time, and marijuana has been around for you know a, a long time, too, and the studies... I, I thought would show that, you know, alcohol compared to marijuana, uh, alcohol and, and, and nicotine hands down get the death. 
Bill, are you going to be lining up to buy some pot? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, no? I think it's it's expensive. Is it? What you get, and and I and I think if I don't, can you clarify this too? Can you tell me um, if the penalties for driving under the influence of marijuana are the same as driving under the influence of alcohol? Well, the, the, it's a very good question because our language in our statutes talks about driving while under the influence. It doesn't say of alcohol necessarily. It's basically driving yeah. under the influence or it's considered to be driving while – sometimes it says intoxicated, which would be alcohol. I will look into yeah. the specifics of language, but the idea is that if you're driving while in an impaired in any way – that's you're going to get tagged and you're going to get punished the right. same. You're not supposed to be right. impaired while driving. Period. End. Yeah. I think Whether you're really going too slowly or your vision is slurred, uh, you know, blurred, or yeah. you're. I mean, a lot of people on alcohol will go too slowly. Also, you know what I mean? They'll know yeah. that they've had a few drinks and they just won't be able yeah. to react properly. So yeah. um, you just should never drive yeah. while you're impaired with anything. People. I hmm? think the stats say 55,000 people. You could fill giant MetLife Stadium with alcohol-related deaths. I'm sure that's every the case. Year. Alcohol is a horrible year. killer. I see death but certificates every day, and I agree with you. Expensive. Oh, that's right. You're a probate. You're mm-hmm. a probate. Yeah, I see a lot of alcohol-related deaths every day. Why would yeah. you go pay more for something? Um, but, you know, it's, it's expensive. Thanks, Bill. We'll be right back. 203-333-9422. We can cue it up. Are you happy about the fact that today you're able to buy some pot legally in Connecticut for the very first time? 203-333-9422. Give us a call. Lisa wants to hear from you. Call her at 203-333-9422. The Lisa Wexler Show is on WICC 600 AM and 1073 FM. Bob Dylan. It's always good to have Bob Dylan. Welcome back to the show. 203-333-9422. And they're lining up because the big news of the story, the big news story of the day today here in Connecticut is after long last, a lot of people waiting for this day, you'll be able to buy pot uh, for without fear of any kind of stopping and frisking with any kind of fear of criminal recrimination, and you'll be able to smoke it. And you have to be over 21. You've got to show an ID. We have uh, less than 10 dispensaries around the state, but it's expected that there will be more of those. And hand-in-hand with that is the erasure of many, many uh, drug convictions for the sale, possession of marijuana. So it's a new world. And I have to tell you that um, I have to speak from my heart and my head with the experience that I have uh, as a probate judge in the state of Connecticut. And the reason that that's relevant is because probate judges have jurisdiction over mental health commitments. And it just so happens that in the Westport Western District, we have one of only a handful of full-blown psychiatric hospitals that are in my district. And that means that I'm there a lot of the time. And what I've noticed over the past few years is very often when people are are committed, when they're admitted on an emergency basis or they're walking in there and they need to be committed according to the hospital, that they have a dual diagnosis that the psychiatrists are putting down on their forms. And the first is usually the primary diagnosis. The primary reason they're there is schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder that has affected, that has caused what we call a psychosis. And the word psychosis essentially means a break with reality. But very often, secondary to that, I will see cannabis abuse. And this is becoming more and more prevalent. And it started almost immediately after the medical marijuana was allowed because many of these people got a medical marijuana card. The problem is that if you already have a predisposition to mental illness of any kind, whether it be depression, whether it be 
schizophrenia or bipolar disorder one or two, that smoking pot makes it worse. It makes it worse, number one, because it is a psychoactive drug itself, and it seems to trigger a break with reality in people that are already predisposed towards seeing the world differently than other people. And the other reason that it really is very bad for this population of people is because it blunts the effect of medicine they're supposed to be taking that actually controls their symptoms. So between the one and the two, smoking pot has led a lot more people to have to go into inpatient psychiatric care. And I was looking this up on the National Institute of Drug Abuse website, which is part of the NIH, which has a page called, Is There a Link Between Marijuana Use and Psychiatric Disorders? And it basically says that recent research suggests that smoking high-potency marijuana every day, which many of these people do, could increase the chances of developing psychosis by nearly five times compared to people who have never used pot. The amount of drug use, the age at first used, and genetic vulnerability have been shown to influence this relationship. Several studies have linked marijuana use to increased risk for psychiatric disorders to begin with, including schizophrenia. In other words, if you're going to be somebody who gets into the habit of smoking pot, we don't know what gene or environmental trigger or the combination of both leads to schizophrenia. But studies are showing that the increased risk, that there is an increased risk of developing schizophrenia if you are somebody who habitually uses pot. It can also lead to depression, anxiety, and other substance use disorders, which is why so many people um, refer to pot as a, quote, gateway drug. So uh, it's really interesting. It says recent research has found that people who use marijuana and carry a specific variant of something called the AKT1 gene, which codes for an enzyme that affects dopamine, are at increased risk of developing psychosis. And again, do you know if you have that gene? You probably don't even know. But this is why people are so concerned about adolescents experimenting. Now, we know, you and I know, that we have not allowed, by use of this law, we are not allowing adolescents to use marijuana. We're saying it has to be under the age of 21. The question, over the age, pardon me, over the age of 21, The question is going to become for our society, and we're not going to know until we live it, right, whether or not making it legal over 21 is actually going to effectively more regulate it, or it's going to be ineffective, and it's going to allow access for a population under 21 that may decide to um, experiment more because they figure that by the time they're 21, they can use it anyway, and therefore how bad can it be? And a lot of that is going to depend on public health messaging, on educational messaging, on parenting, and on our view as a culture, as a society, of how strictly we really want to enforce these age restrictions. If we're very serious about enforcing these age restrictions, and we say, look, at 21, even though we know the male brain, no offense, Andrew, doesn't fully develop until you're 25, as opposed to the female brain, which develops earlier, Thank you. 30 seconds. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, but even though we, we, we know that the actual brain doesn't really develop until the mid-20s, we've determined as a society that 21 is the cutoff, that that's the reasonable time in which we're going to allow people to smoke pot. The truth is we're in uncharted territory right now. We just are. And it's a, it's a great experimentation, and we're going to have to see how it plays out. Am I nervous about it? You bet I am. Am I happy about it? Not particularly. 203-333-9422. Do I think anybody should go to jail for pot? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I would have preferred that we got comfortable with decriminalizing the substance and and getting rid of their, expunging their records and all of that. I'm very in favor of that. But am I really happy about the fact that we've allowed the marijuana industry to disguise their product in gummy bears that are left on school bus uh, seats so that unwittingly kids are ingesting this stuff? No, I'm not happy about it. We know it's a psychoactive substance, and in my opinion, in my opinion, it should never have been allowed to be disguised as anything other than what it is with the proper labeling for what it is. 
so that kids are not lulled into thinking that they're chewing a gummy bear when, in fact, they're ingesting marijuana. I don't understand it, and I think it was a mistake. We're going to be back with Jesse Green in just a moment. 203-333-9422, the number one critic, the number one theater critic in the United States of America who happens to write for the New York Times. We'll be right back. Where Shelton comes first for news and talk. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. The great New York Times theater critic Jesse Green joins us right now. He wrote a fabulous bestseller called Shy, which is a wonderfully annotated autobiography of Mary Rogers, the daughter of Richard Rogers, who who lived and grew up largely right here in Fairfield. From 2013 to 2017, Jesse Green was the theater critic for New York Magazine, where he had also been a contributing editor. He has written about theater and culture for so many years. More notably, his recent reviews were a bang-up, fabulous one for the Merrily We Roll Along revival, which he says is one of the best in years, and Maria Friedman has been in charge of that. We had her on the show not too long ago. Love her. Love her. And then also, Jesse, I think you got into a little bit of hot water, but I personally thought it was undeserved for your review of K-pop, where we had the star of K-pop come on the show, too. And then 48 hours later, the poor kid was out of a job. But it wasn't his fault, and it wasn't your fault. Uh, and uh, wel- welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show. Welcome back, Jesse. So I'm so happy to talk with you. Hi. Uh, hi, Lisa. It's great to talk to you. I had a blast last time. Oh, it's so great. By the way, the book, are you in your umpteenth printing now? You know, it was sold out at the time I interviewed you. All these people were asking me afterwards, how do I get the book? How do I get the book? I'm like, it's sold out. What can I tell you? Are you in, are you in more printings now with Shy? Uh, yeah, yeah. We we're in like our seventh printing. It's doing oh. very well. And we have the paperback coming out uh, uh, later this year and the audio book. Oh, how amazing. Well, if you need a blurb, I'm all in because I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was just marvelous. Anyway, so uh, Jesse Green, hi and welcome. Uh, I wanted to talk with you a little bit. We're going to get to what we definitely should watch and what we should see on Broadway as we save up our tickets. But you were in a little bit of a kerfuffle, a little bit, for K-pop. Tell us about about K-pop because we were paying attention to it. And full disclosure, full disclosure, I am a major K-drama freak. It's all I watch. I watch nothing in English. I watch everything in Korean every single night. I was very excited about K-pop coming, but I already had some insiders tell me that it wasn't quite up to a Broadway show. So I wasn't shocked to see your review. But let me hear from you about it. Well, first of all, K-pop had originally been produced off-Broadway a number of years ago in a completely different format where – you kind of uh, went from room to room and saw bits of the play happening in front of you. And then it ended up after you saw, after, you know, different nomadic groups of audience got to see each of these scenes in different rooms, they all gathered together at the end for a kind of celebratory concert. And it was really a lot of fun and kind of revealing about the industry that was creating K-pop and trying to market it at that time uh, for U.S. crossover. When when they brought it to Broadway and, you know, with uh, huge delays because of the pandemic and such, they ha- had to completely remake it because there's no Broadway theater in which you can stage that sort of event. So they rewrote it into a more conventional attempt at an American-style musical, but about a Korean uh, cultural phenomenon. And yet they... Uh, didn't really uh, get all the way there, I guess is what I would say. So if you're a fan of K-pop and you like the music and you like the drama in that style, I think you probably would have liked it. And I said as much in the review. But if you're a fan of the, uh, you know, of the Broadway musical and the kind of ideas uh, of what it can do through development of character and through plot, it was awfully thin. And I said Mm. that as well. Um, However... (laughs) You know, people get hurt when when you they get a bad review. And I'm not surprised that some of the young people who are involved in the show, a huge number of them first timers on Broadway, um, you know, uh, using social media and things like that kind of lashed out at me, not because I had written a negative review, they said, but because I had written a racist review. 
Yeah, I read the review, <laughs> and, and I would give you a pass on that, Jesse Green. I didn't see any racism in the review, in my own opinion. It's my opinion, but I didn't see it. Well, clearly I didn't. Um, you know, insofar as I spoke about having liked the show previously, it, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have made sense for for me to have a – I'm not saying I'm free of racism. I don't know if anybody's free of racism, but the review certainly – didn't, uh, you know, express that. And um, I, you know, really didn't see any reason to back off. And they demanded an apology from me and from the Times. And I, you know, happily, the Times basically said uh, no. And uh, that was the end of it as far as I was concerned, except that I shut down Twitter for a while because the, you know, I don't know if we want to get into this, but people use, we know how people use social media these days. We see it in government, right? So they don't make any distinction between that and a bad review. And uh, I didn't find it emotionally uh, sustainable for myself. So I just turned it off. And, and my life has been a lot better since then. Yeah, like a light switch, as they said in the Book of Mormon. So uh, we're chatting with Jesse Green, the New York Times theater critic. Well, I think in lyrics all the time. And people who listen to my show know I'm always I'm thinking and I'm talking in song lyrics. But that's what I really wanted to ask you about, the emotional component of being a critic. And there it is right there. So sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from you, the noise just gets too loud. Well, you know, listen, Lisa, do you go to a show and I know you love the theater and, and you go often, right? Yes. So, and you go with friends usually or family or something like that? Yes. I, my daughter is my number one pick because she is even more of a theater lover. I, I gave it to her, Jesse. I gave it to her. I handed her the football, <laughs> and she ran with it. She knows more than I do, and it's such a pleasure to be with her. So, yes, she's my okay. favorite number one theater buddy. Yeah. Okay. So when you're finished seeing a show, yes. do you enjoy discussing it with her? That's most of the fun. Are you kidding? I mean, really, that's the part two. Part one is seeing the show. Part two is basically taking it apart. Absolutely. Right. And do you do you always agree on everything? No. Exactly. That's my point. So disagreeing about shows should be part of the pleasure of of being a theater lover. It does not need to be a uh, furious cultural debate. With accusations and, uh, and you know, really deep, profound anger. I feel that, you know, the understanding um, between theater goers, theater critics, theater producers, and, and all these different groups has kind of fallen apart in recent years, largely the result of social media. And I'd seen it in action many times since I started, especially being on such a major platform as the New York Times. Obviously, you're going to be uh, you know, have a target on your back whenever you say something negative about something someone doesn't like that someone else loves or use or weirdly when you say something positive about something somebody hates. So um, instead of being in a place where we enjoy disagreeing, listening to each other's point of view, maybe changing our minds, maybe not changing our minds, we're at a place where someone's different opinion is somehow a mortal threat. And that is something I just I can't give into or else I wouldn't be able to write at all. I still just, you know, I still love going to every show. I hope every show is going to be fabulous. I'm disappointed when it isn't. And I try with some love and respect to discuss why in my reviews. Yeah, we're chatting with Jesse Green, New York Times theater critic. A recent show that you absolutely adored was Some Like It Hot, which incidentally I'm seeing on Saturday night. Right. What's yeah, I'm going to see it this Saturday night. I have tickets to some like it hot this Saturday night and I have tickets to six, which I'm embarrassed to tell you I didn't see yet, but I'm going to go see it next next week. Um, and you love some like it hot. And for those who remember the Billy Wilder movie with Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe and oh my, what a, and Jack Lemmon, what an unbelievable cast that was. You loved Mark Shaman's. You loved everything about it, according to the review. Pretty much. I mean, I guess I wouldn't quite say everything about it, but enough so that it represents a, you know, a really great idea of what a musical can be today that is both classic in its sound and in its enjoyment, its dance, the songs, but that also takes uh, older material and finds a way without messing it up to adjust it to what we're interested in now and to explore ideas that couldn't have been explored when the material was new. So in, in this version of the show, while it still has the basic plot of these two guys who are 
you know, jazz musicians in Chicago around the time of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Uh, they they uh, are witnesses to a mob hit and they have to escape. And so they come up with the idea of dressing in drag and joining a, a girl band that's on tour. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's in the original, a lot of the humor came from haha, these two extremely awkward looking guys in a dress. And, and it, right. you know, it, it is a great, funny movie. It is. Um, could you do that now, just like that, in in our environment of exploring, you know, new dimensions of gender and sexuality? I don't, I don't know if you could. You know, Tootsie had some problems along the same line. Mm. Um, so what they did was they altered the plot a certain amount in order to allow it to be both what it was and yet also a kind of serious and respectful and funny exploration of of the discovery by one of the characters of his or her, I should say, um, you know, gender nonconformity. And it's, I found it wonderful. Some people don't, won't, but everybody's going to love the singing and dancing. It must be really hard for whoever it is to inhabit the Marilyn Monroe character. I kept thinking Megan Hilty should have been cast for it, but maybe that's just <laughs> smashing me all the time. But, um, but who did they pick to do it, Jesse Green? Do you remember? Well, it's funny you mentioned Six. Uh, the, 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 the person who plays that role, whose name is Sugar, in the show is Adriana Hicks, who was in the original cast of Six. Oh. And they, they, um, they altered that character as well because what are you going to do? You're not going to be able to do Marilyn Monroe. Right. Nobody True. can do – I mean, I, I grant you that Megan Hilty was fabulous in, in Smash doing that role. She but, was. you know, you just don't want to set yourself up in a new musical saying, I'm Marilyn Monroe. Mm. You know, it's just it's right. not right. Not fair. So. Right. So they changed the character, and she too has an arc of exploration. She's black in, in this case, and oh. uh, that that brings a really interesting background to the character of this woman who's, you know, been done wrong by men all her life and falls mm. in love with a man who is dressed as a woman. It's fascinating. <laughs> okay. Well, Mark Shaman's coming on soon, so we'll have a good time talking with him about how he developed that in terms of writing. He was great. Absolutely. I loved his hairspray. We're chatting with uh, Jesse Green, and we're getting into a little bit of the details, the weeds, you should excuse the expression today, on, uh, <laughs> on Broadway shows. Uh, has it been a good season so far, Jesse? What do you think? Oh, I do think it's been a good season. Uh, a, a really interesting mix, as the fall sometimes is, of kind of prestige, serious work, and smaller but beautiful uh, musicals that are not the type you're going to typically see in the spring. Um, I, 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 I'm not counting Some Like It Hot as a smaller, you know, mm, dainty musical. Right. Some Like It Hot is a real old-fashioned barn burner. But uh, we have a musical called Anne Juliet, uh, and, and more importantly, one called Kimberly Akimbo that opened this fall that really fill that slot that there's room for, like, once every two years on Broadway for a kind of lovely small uh, and very moving show. This is the one starring Victoria Clark that mm. played off-Broadway a year ago about a woman with uh, a, a, a girl with a premature aging disease, kind of like progeria. And uh, she looks oh. like she's in her 70s when she's only 16 and is going to high school. And it's kind of hilarious and kind of sad and entirely beautiful. So so there's that. And we've, we've had the prestige hits, you know, Death of a Salesman, uh, with with the uh, all black cast of Wendell Pierce and Sharon mm. D. Clark and Andre DeShields, and we had Leopoldstadt, the, the Tom oh, Stott, which play. I Maybe. haven't seen yet, and I'm told I must see that. Must. Well, they've extended, and this is super rare for a serious play, all the way to July. At this point, it's been such a hit, um, oh. and so you'll have a chance to see it. And I've got this, to see this is it. his play, basically about his own late in life discovery of his Jewish roots. And the loss of much of uh, his ancestry, which he didn't even know about during the Holocaust. So, I mean, it's a tough sit in, in, in terms of uh, the history that's displayed, but it, it's got a lot of the stop hard polish and really, really uh, beautiful, beautifully staged production. And there's been the piano lesson and Top Dog Underdog and, and Ohio State Murders with mm. uh, Audra McDonald in a brilliant yeah. performance, as always, from her. Always. From her uh, repertoire of tragic women, you know the way she does. Unbelievable. And Unbelievable. I mean, uh, uh, and and a play called Between Riverside and Crazy. So I guess what I'm saying is, this fall has been to me one of the strongest falls on record. 
Well, we needed it because we had so much pent up, right? We had so much deferred theater. Exactly. We had a lot of And I think that's part of why it happened, too, because I think a lot of these productions were waiting till it felt safe to get back in the water. And so some of the best jumped in first. And, and, uh, you know, uh, I should also, you know, mention, you know, Funny Girl, which was sort of a bust. Oh, that's right. That's right. But uh, came back at the end of September. Uh, with Leah Michelle uh, taking over the lead and completely altering the show, um, so you know you don't you don't get many seasons like that where you have a funny girl and a some like it hot really leading the band, and then you have the beautiful musical like Kimberly Akimbo behind, an interesting one like Anne Julia, and then all those you know really deep powerful prestige plays all at the same time. A lot of them are closing by the end of January though, so if any of those things interest you, you might want to jump on it. Is Victoria Clark, am I remembering right, was she the one in Light in the Piazza many years ago? Is that the same one? Yes, she played the mother in she that. Was and wonderful. It's a, she won the Tony Award yeah. and is really one of our great singing actors. She and is. she really shows why, in this case, playing this uh, 16-year-old girl in the body of a 70-year-old woman. Wow, this is fabulous. Uh, Jesse Green, can you stick around? I'm, you know, I've got to go to a commercial, and I really wanted to talk with you about some of the things coming up because people are now making their plans. It's January for what they want to see in the next few months. Would you stick around Absolutely. a couple more minutes? Thank you so much. We're chatting with Jesse Green, the New York Times theater critic. We'll be right back. From Norwalk to New Canaan, from Monroe to Milford, Fairfield County listens to The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. We are talking with Jesse Green, the chief New York Times theater critic, and we are dishing it up a little bit about what's happening now, what you really must see, and what's going to be coming on on the spring uh, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. And by the way, thank you for that wonderful review of Merrily We Roll Along. I don't have anything to do with the production, but I met Maria Friedman, um, and I met her in person, not only on the show, because she came to Stanford for this beautiful benefit for our orchestra, Lumos. And I knew that she was behind this. And her sister, Sonia, is another powerhouse theater person from London. And she's coming, I think, to... Uh, the spring with New York, New York. Anyway, the two Friedman sisters really fabulously enriching our culture, don't you think? Unbelievable. Yes, and and doing an amazing job with uh, finding ways to represent in the years after his recent death uh, the great works of Stephen Sondheim. That Merrily, you know, Merrily is famously kind of an impossible musical. It it opened in 1981 and was a total flop and They've tried to fix it ever since. Sondheim himself and the uh, the book writer, George Firth, they just rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And in my mind, it just got worse and worse. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love the show. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I would be happy to attend an entire season of versions of Merrily We Roll Along <laughs> where they try to fix it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is the first one that I feel really, you know, got close to completely making it work it wasn't quite there off broadway but the the really smart thing is they're giving themselves a little more time it'll be opening on broadway not until the fall and oh, next uh, that fall. way okay, i think right okay they can probably you know you know even up it a little further but boy is that a great score and uh, a moving story yeah and the thing is i have only listened to the soundtrack I've never actually seen a production of Merrily We Roll Along. Every time I thought I might want to see it, it closed almost overnight. So, and <laughs> well, that's it's right. Tr- it's true. And this one, the which is at, um, what is it, the Theater Center, the New York? Th- well, it like was off-Broadway at New York Theater Workshop, but it'll be, it. yeah. on Broadway, yeah. it'll be on Broadway, yeah. It'll be on Broadway. But this yeah. one s- starred um, uh, Daniel Radcliffe um, mm-hmm. uh, as one of the three friends who are at the center of the story, and Jonathan Groff, and Lindsay Mendez, but it's it's really it it finally takes this show you know by the neck and says, okay, here is what this is about. We're going to be really clear about it because it's a kind of difficult concept. It's these three friends whom we see first in their fo- late forties, and as each scene goes by, they get younger and younger until yeah. at the end we see them as late teenagers, and it's heartbreaking because all of the innocence and hope of their early years, which we see at the end, we know by that point has been traduced by their own uh, betrayals and by their own cynicism in, in middle age. So it's, it's really a powerful story, and I love the way she's 
taken it in hand. It's so typically Sondheim to to write that kind of a story too. You know, it, his work was so much about. I hate to even say was right, but his work was so yeah. much about philosophically understanding humans and and how humans related to each other over the course of time. Well, uh, look at Into the Woods, which just yes. closed uh, last week mm. on Broadway, uh, where it had been extended and extended and extended, and it's now going on national tour. Mm. And I would recommend you, you know, to if if you didn't get to see it in New York, find out where it's playing uh, so near funny. you and go see it because, th- th- you know, that's another classic version of what you just said. Oh, yeah, um, that's but, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but we have a weird, a weirdly interesting combination. We have another Sondheim coming up this spring. Yes, we need Todd. Um, we, holy cow. We have sw- holy cow, exactly. Well, <laughs> maybe not cow. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> um, but in any case, Sweeney Todd, the story of the uh, vengeful barber who who uh, kills his uh, clients and his his uh, lover, uh, Mrs. Lovett, who turns them into meat pies to make her store uh, successful, is coming back to Broadway in March. I was starring Josh Groban as the barber and Annalie Ashford as as uh, Mrs. Lovett. And what's thrilling here for me, honestly, I mean, I'm looking forward to everything, but they are using the original full orchestra. This is not one of those Beautiful. mini Todds or teeny Todds, as they used to call them, <laughs> <laughs> where, teeny you know, Todd. you had, I don't know, like, you know, three pianos and a and a bass drum, you know, or something like that. Or if you remember the, the really quite beautiful one with uh, Patti LuPone and Michael Service where the actors played their own instruments. Yes. Okay, so that was a concept, and it worked for what it was. But this is the real thing with a huge orchestra and real voices, as you wow. know, Josh Groban, for yeah. heaven's sake, and Ruthie Ann Miles and Jordan Fisher, lots of great people. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to that. Did you like him and Natasha and the whatever? My, my daughter hated the show. She said, Mommy, you'll hate it. I hated it. She hated that show. <laughs> I, I I think they would love I would think they would love it that you call it Nasha Natasha and the whatever. Right. Um that, that's what they were going for in their marketing. Um <laughs> N- Natasha Pierre and the great comet of eighteen nineteen. I don't know there's more words in there somewhere. Um I, I was not a huge fan of the show. I thought, you know, his he sang so beautifully that it made up for a lot of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um and and the visual uh, the staging was to me quite astonishing uh but no it's it's not my favorite show of, of the last uh, 10 years certainly you know what's so but beautiful I, go we're, ch- we're chatting with jesse green and you're reeling off so many names of such raw talent like for example daniel radcliffe who could have retired on the laurels of harry potter forever and done nothing and yet you see him in the theater you see him on television you see him in the movies this guy uh, has been so challenging of himself, so risk-taking. He's out there. He's doing his craft. And name after name that you're rolling off, theater is still the most intimate way in which any of us can experience this kind of talent. And we're so lucky that so many extra- incredibly talented people who could be very far away from us as an audience are still choosing to walk the boards on Broadway. It's really astonishing. I, I, I second that completely. And thinking about Radcliffe, you know, in Merrily We Roll Along, to be honest, the role he chose to play is the second lead. It's not the it's not the main lead. Jonathan Groff is the main lead. Uh, you know, so his commitment is not to his ego, Correct. but it's to, you know, enjoy this work and to bring it to us, as you say, in this kind of intimate and personal way. And, you know, you could say the same of uh, Audrey McDonald doing right. – you know, a, an incredibly tragic, beautiful, serious play, not the kind of thing, you know, that's likely to get audiences for 10 years when she could just keep doing TV shows, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but a lot of these artists grew up in the theater. And as you say, it's their first love and their last love, too. And Josh Groban, for sure. I mean, he could just keep doing pop concerts. What does he need to do? Yeah, he's you know, eight to performances this role a week. Ever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there's really lots. Beautiful. There's lots of. I mean, you know, there's so many interesting and distinct kinds of shows coming up uh, this spring. I, I, you know, we we could talk forever about them, but we haven't even mentioned among musicals. We've got the revival of 
uh, Bob Fosse's Dancing, if you if you want an extreme dancing show. And we've got the revival, or I should say revisal, because it's been the book is totally rewritten of Camelot. Yes, uh, yes, with Philip Sue. That's right. I just saw her in the Suffragettes one. What did they call that? Suffragettes? What was the name? It was was called It had a bad title. I'm sorry. Suffs at the public theater. And she was honestly the only reason to see the show. The show, I could write a deep review of the show. The show was an almost show. It was almost. (laughs) It just, it wasn't there, but you must see a lot like that, Jesse Green. You must see a lot of almost. Especially with musicals, they're mostly that because... I mean, think about how difficult it is to write oh, a great musical. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, there's so many moving parts. It's almost impossible to get them all right. And that was a brand new work on stage. And, yes, she's always fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to this. This is another in the series of Lincoln Center Theater musicals directed by Bartlett Shear, mm. uh, like South Pacific and The King and I and My yeah. Fair Lady, where he really takes these classic works of, uh, of the golden age of musical theater and investigates them. In a, in a deep new way. In this case, you know, Camelot famously has an impossible book. It doesn't work at all. It makes no sense. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's hired Aaron Sorkin, uh, who oh. rewrote, who wrote the play version of, of um, To Kill a Mockingbird for Bart Shear to rewrite the book of Camelot. And, you know, who knows what he came who up knows? with. I, who I mean, knows? maybe they're, maybe they're doing, you know, debates uh, in the castle or something like that. But um, I, I really look forward to that. And then we have, are you ready for this? Jesse, I have to cut you off. Ah. You hear the theme? I'm at noon. You'll have to come back. You're going to come back soon, right? I'll Jesse Green, New York Times Lisa. theater critic, has to come back on the show very, very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 